Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now. Not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. Oh, I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Welcome to Democracy Sausage from ANU's Australian Studies Institute and the Crawford School of Public Policy. I'm Mark Kenny. We're going to talk today about standards in public office, transparency, longevity, elections in a time of COVID, and many other things besides. Last week, as we were recording this podcast, the New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian was dropping a political depth charge that may yet shake her out of office. Admitting to a long-standing close personal relationship the Premier regarded as uncommonly proper revealed she'd been less than transparent about a five-year-plus relationship with Daryl Maguire, formerly a Liberal MP and from 2018 regarded as persona non grata by her, her party and by the Independent Commission Against Corruption. Now we find out she was seeing him all that time and right up to August this year when it became clear he was the subject of a whole new and immensely damaging ICAC inquiry. Meanwhile, the Australian Federal Police has announced it has launched a criminal investigation into the Leppington Triangle land deal in which nearly $30 million was paid for land for the future expansion of the Western Sydney Airport when the land was worth only a tenth of that. Big payday for the vendor who, as it happens, had been a generous political donor in the past. And Jacinda Ardern has made New Zealand history and the ACT Labor Party has also turned 19 years straight in office into 22 years and counting. So it was a big political weekend. Let's bring in our excellent panel now. Professor Paul Pickering is a historian. He's director of the ANU's Research School of Humanities and the Arts. And he's also director of the Australian Studies Institute. Welcome, Paul. Yeah, good morning. I should indeed say welcome back. You've been on here many times before. Thank you. And as always, the wonderful Dr. Maria Teflaga. She's a lecturer in the School of Politics and Industrial uh, and International Relations. I always go to say industrial relations. That's my old IR background. As well as being director of the Centre for Australian Politics. 
welcome again, Maria. Of course, Hello, everyone. As always. Let's start with those elections over the weekend just gone. Jacinda Ardern has confirmed her rock star status as a global centre-left hero, breaking records with the support for her New Zealand Labour Party, which was just emphatically re, uh, re-elected. Uh, uh, quite a strong result. Uh, she was going into this election as favourite, Maria, but um, really, uh, you know, the, the multi-member system that they have there, the multi-member parliament that they have there is just not used to having one party have a majority in its own right. Yeah, that's right. That's what makes this result um, so spectacular. The the institutional design of that electoral system is essentially geared to represent proportionality. And in general, like we know in, in Australia, that neither party here primary vote is actually over 50%. They are elected on preferences, right? Mm. That's why you need to list all the boxes in the on the ballot. And so the achievement of um of Jacinda Ardern in achieving a majority is is exceptional not only because as I said the institutional framework sort of suggests that she's unlikely to achieve that. Um, result. It's also that everyone is kind of used to the idea that there will be a coalition and that there will be a coalition government. So it's an emphatic um, win, probably unlikely to be repeated um, in the near future, uh, and sort of goes to show um, how 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 much faith the electorate um, has in her and how she's been able to draw. Uh, votes from across the political spectrum in order to be able to achieve this. It is an emphatic win, Paul, um, but it's uh, it, it's been one fair and square. I guess you would say it's an election in the period of COVID uh, that this is, uh, you know, the, the sort of overarching factor of just about everything that's happening in democratic politics around the world. Of course, we'll be interested to see how that plays out in the US as well. That that's the one that everyone is worried about or, or concerned about at the moment. But um, you know, Jacinda Ardern has performed extraordinarily well, and you know, COVID notwithstanding, she won it fair and square. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. It I guess it underscores the point that in times of crisis, people um, expect governments to act. And she's quite clearly stood up and done the uh, the right thing by the community and um, held the line in a very clear way and been successful. And so if a government um, is seen to act on behalf of the community, I don't think it's a surprise really that she's um, enjoyed the level of support that she has. Yeah, but we see the, the sort of politics of lockdown can be quite volatile, quite toxic in some quarters. Uh, we're seeing that play out a lot in Victoria at the moment. And whilst New Zealand hasn't had the the crisis that Victoria has been through, particularly in terms of the number of, of fatalities, you know, the breakdown of the hotel quarantine system uh, and so forth, and of course the, 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 the mismanagement of the and underfunding of the aged care system, it has nonetheless uh, pursued somewhat controversially you know, pretty much an eradication strategy, and it has had some setbacks. Uh, but nonetheless, there's been, as you say, Paul, there's been this real sense that the government has brought the community together uh, and that together everyone has engaged in this process, perhaps a function of being an island nation like we are as well, uh, where people can see their country in sort of very geographically discrete terms as well. But 
this real sense of shared purpose and actually getting a good result and rewarding the government for that at the first chance uh, the ballot box. Yeah, I mean, the point you make about being island nations is is a really interesting one. It used to be called the tyranny of distance. Yeah. But are both Australia and New Zealand um, uh, enjoying the benefits of being a long way from Europe? The security <laughs> of distance. Yeah. yeah, it's now the security of distance. Yeah, exactly. Um, I was trying to – but back to your point about um, – uh, keeping the community together and building consensus. I was thinking back, uh, and I'm not sure, I, I should have looked it up, but I was thinking back to the last time that that happened in New Zealand, and I think it was when David Longy first got elected, that enthusiasm that, that surrounded that. I mean, I remember... So this is back in the 1980s. Back in the 1980s when the big issue was the visit of US nuclear ships to uh, to New Zealand, and it that also resonated internationally in the way that she has. I remember having a badge that said, "You know, Longy and me, nuclear free," <laughs> and I, I think it really it really captured that moment. And again, there was a sort of a consensus in New Zealand that that the government needed to stop the visit of uh, nuclear ships, even at the risk of the ANZUS Treaty. So again, she's she's managed to not only solidify. Um, the New Zealand community, but also had some really interesting international resonances. Well, she's sort of faced multiple crises and, and risen to the occasion, and I guess that's the thing. Uh, you know, her her leadership style and her approach is clearly not a fluke uh, because she's been tested multiple times. I think what's really so you're referring, for example, to the the, the, the uh, massacre. Christchurch massacre, which was March uh, 2019, so about 18 months ago. Yeah, and the, it the very strongly stamped her style of government, didn't it? Absolutely, and the um, volcano explosion yeah, as well. Um, and I think what has quite resonated with a lot of people is that she's sort of seen to the way she communicates is is sort of has an emphasis on transparency and she's sort of seen to be transparent in the way she communicates about what the government is doing its rationale the way that um you know that they've sort of like modeled some of these behaviors around um the lockdown and uh this is a sort of kind of mode of leadership that is particularly good for someone like her with her skill set but is also one that you know it engenders um trust and so it's not sort of surprising um that uh given that she's been tested multiple times she also had a baby i mean in office mm. uh, which yeah, we sort of forgot about yeah. now um you know so it it doesn't it doesn't um surprise me that the community as sort of paul was sort of saying has has um rallied to her because it's it's not just a question of luck i think this is a pattern yeah and it, there's a sense of authenticity about her i mean having a baby in office is not uh, is not a stunt for a start um it's it's a fact- I would hope not no i would hope <laughs> No, it's a fact of life yes. um, uh, and one that very many people can relate to. One of the other things that she took to doing quite a lot of was these Facebook Lives where she would literally do, uh, as I understand it, you know, five, ten-minute type chats at the end of the day, not every day but quite frequently from from her house. And um, I heard a number of people talking about this. They'd say that, you know, in the background you could see the house was a bit messy as most 
you know, houses are, particularly when there's a, a newborn around. Uh, and she would do these without makeup and she would just sort of converse, extemporise almost, to, you know, to down the barrel of the camera. Yeah, she was in her pyjamas once. Yeah, highly relatable. Yeah, yeah. I think it will be fascinating to sort of see if if the government chooses not to form a coalition with any party, particularly a party that is to the right of it, how it actually manages the policy discussion because that is the area in which Adern has sort of faced some uh, I guess pushback and and criticism, and you know, in some cases, the government hasn't necessarily been able to resolve problems around you know the, the high cost of housing in Auckland, for example. And so, um, and some of those poverty indicators uh, where they've set out a, a series of goals, and some of the most critical ones, they've actually gone backwards on. Exactly, and so you know, she may actually wish that she didn't do as well. Um, because at least when you don't have a majority, then it does just, it does diffuse, um, accountability, right, across the political system because, of course, you don't have a majority, um, which is sort of something that happens with the Senate in, in, in the Australian federal, um, system. And so that's the thing that I'm really interested to sort of see, um, going forward because while she is an excellent, um, communicator and has built up a lot of community trust, uh, the pressure on them, on the Labor government to now deliver their, their basically their policy platform and for it to actually succeed will, will grow. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, isn't it, uh, Paul? If we think back to 2004, we can see the seeds of John Howard's defeat in 2007 as a function of how well he did in 2004. He suddenly had control of the Senate un- unexpectedly and we saw some legislative excesses there in terms of um, industrial relations changes and, and some other things. And that actually did the the kind of um, overall reputation of the government harm. I mean, there was the its time factor by 2007 as well. But uh, you can you can, it's one of those be careful what you wish for moments in a way. If Labor does govern in its own right in New Zealand, as Maria says, it, it doesn't have New Zealand first there to to sort of push back against some of the – it doesn't have to negotiate with that other party for, uh, you know, for government policy. Um, it's wholly accountable for whatever it does. And as Maria says, it'll have to take the bad with the good. Yeah, I think there's two two issues there. One is it, it um, leads – it ramps up expectations of the government. Mm. But within the party, it also licenses ideology in a way in yeah. that people think all of a sudden they've got um, – the opportunity to do things that they otherwise wouldn't. I can remember in the uh, the John Cain years. Um, I'm sounding like a historian because I am a historian. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I think John Cain was terrified that he'd win the upper house because, because the Labor policy was to abolish the upper house. Yeah. Um, and so the a, a too large a victory um, can actually be a, a double edged sword, as as uh, as we've said. That expectation thing's really interesting too. You're absolutely right. Uh, you get a huge backbench, and you you get people who are impatient, you know, who want front bench service, and who would go out and try and make a name for themselves. But you just don't have the normal handbrake that you normally have. Now in New Zealand, we're talking about a unicameral political system. There isn't an upper house. So having a majority, I mean, this is the point you were making so well, Maria, that having a majority in the in your own right means that effectively, as long as your party holds together, you can pass any legislation, no matter how good or no matter how crazy. 
uh, yeah. or how unpopular or how ineffective or how unwise or however you might want to describe it, you're accountable for it. Well, that's right. And, I mean, in some ways, depending on the structure of a party and, and particularly its internal dynamics, and I don't pretend to know enough about New Zealand Labor to, to say, but it could be the case that her, her backbench becomes her opposition, which is an, a strange sort of dynamic to kind of watch, particularly in, the, in an MMP sort of situation. It'll be Isn't really... that what Jim Hacker referred to as the opposition in residence? I mean, there's sort of <laughs> more, more dangerous than the one across the... That's right. The, the enemy is behind you. Yeah. The, your opposition is in front. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that is and that is actually a major feature of, of British politics in particular because the chamber is so large. It was, you know, to, to put on my former historian hat too, Paul, like, uh, you know, the Fraser years were very much marked by this phenomena in Australia where yeah. backbenchers would would cross the floor and, and broadly speaking I think this is actually a healthy thing I wish we, we saw um, more of it but we don't have the incentives in in our system it will be very interesting to see what actually happens with the opposition in New Zealand um, will they seek to um, effectively balkanize and differentiate themselves even more to grab attention or will they sort of form coalitions to to try to criticize Size and oppose um, the government. So it, it will be fun times ahead. Get your get your popcorn out. Yeah, Paul, you've done some work in the past on Howard's class of '96 because that was a, a big landslide, and there was all these people that came in with John Howard in 1996 at the end of the Labor government. There's obviously going to be quite a few people who are going to be in the New Zealand legislature now as a function of the popularity of Jacinda Ardern. So that's going to be quite fascinating to watch as well, isn't it? Are those people going to be, um, you know, loyal to her? Will that, will, how many of the class of 96 managed to hang on through those terms, do you recall? It was quite, quite a few, I think. It, it was quite a lot, and they were called Howard's Battlers. Yeah. And uh, uh, the reason and was... Because many of them were women, weren't they? There was, there was women, lots of women, and they were unlike your typical liberal candidate. Um in what was an unexpectedly large uh, swing, yeah, uh, you pick up a whole bunch of candidates or, or people that you otherwise wouldn't have expected to. Who were running in seats that uh, that the party wasn't expected to win. And so there hadn't been necessarily a great deal of attention placed on who was your candidate, just as long as they were yeah. sort of saleable. You, you weren't really imagining they'd be in the parliament and suddenly they are. This can go both ways. You can get some nice surprises and you can get some nasty ones. Well, well, Pauline was a, uh, Pauline Hansen was a nasty surprise and of course they disendorsed her. And she won anyway. And she won anyway. And, and, and there was born One Nation. Yeah, oh. but most of those w- women actually, if you look at their career trajectories, didn't make it onto the front bench. They were in marginal seats. They're often in national held seats. Um, some of them did a little bit better in the shadow cabinet, but most of them didn't actually survive the loss of that. Government, which I think sort of says a lot. Um, and Paul, I mean, you'd remember at the time it was sort of hailed as this sort of, um, well, we've fixed the woman problem. You know, Labor's gone for this complex quota system, but you know, here we are. We've kind of done it on, mm. on, on, um, on talent alone and training programs, which was a big kind of, um, emphasis at the time. Uh, but it is sort of interesting to kind of reflect on that because they weren't, um, I guess the sort of typical, candidate in in many ways and perhaps that's also why they didn't make it to the front bench they they were also not the typical liberal candidates in terms of their ideas either yeah. i mean the, uh, what um 
what inspired that article, the class of 96, was listening to the first speeches of those uh, MPs. And I, I started to think this doesn't sound like a your typical bunch. And so I got copies of the speeches and started highlighting the keywords. And really the profile of what they were saying um, was was not your typical package of ideas for a for a coalition government, and so I then started looking at the backgrounds and the biographies of the of the uh, of these candidates, women and men, and found that they were not your typical liberal candidate in terms of their uh, socioeconomic background either. Um, and so, uh, so when you say, just to drill down on that for a minute, when you say they're not your typical liberal candidate, you mean they weren't sort of party machine people. They weren't long-standing, you know, member, former or current members of the state executive and these types of things. They were they were kind of small business people and, sure. you know, people who are of the liberal, you know, liberal disposition in terms of voting pattern, but, um, but they weren't really kind of encultured lifelong party people. Yeah, and very f- a lot fewer lawyers. Yeah, for example. Right. Um, and a lot fewer a lot fewer very wealthy people more more uh lo- middle lower middle class aspirant people um at, who were uh, far more opposed to the role of government they were much more interested in um winding back the state and so in a way they reflected john howard as the sort of suburban accountant because these people were mostly from the suburbs as well, weren't they? These seats exactly. that they picked up were uh, sort of outer metropolitan seats right around the cities uh, of the capital cities of Australia and some regional seats. Yes. So as a consequence, the the sort of values they they brought to the to the debate were unlike previous coalition governments, even large majorities like Fraser. I mean, the the core issues were about industrial relations, about red tape, the whole idea of big government. The number of times that the term red tape came up in those in those um, first speeches was was quite um, – or, or the concept of red tape was really quite um, revealing and reflected in a way there – the, the sort of ex, their business experience, their life experiences. Yeah, and they and they were they were angry and frustrated with labour. Yeah, yeah, those speeches. Yeah, I mean, I think what is potentially kind of interesting about what might happen in New Zealand because it's a party list voting system is that actually a whole bunch of potentially very radical people have now just been elected. Yeah. Um, because of the way party list systems work, it's much more like the Senate, and we sort of see that um, senators in Australia are either very, very ideological or they're, they're absolutely kind of in the time server kind of category. And so, you know, Jacinda may have just inherited a big management problem that she Well, she may need. have. She may have. Yeah. But, but you've done some work on this as well in terms of the Liberal Party. I mean, the, the, those Howard Battlers, the class of 96, however you call them, ended up being Howard's bulwark against any real serious challenge from Peter Costello through about 12 years of government. Yes, they. I mean, they did. I mean, in part, it reflected, I guess, as Paul was sort of saying, um, you know, their the value set. Um, and a lot has to do with, I guess, how you're sort of socialised into politics. If if um, if, you're, if your party experience is sort of on the thinner side um, and this is the sort of only thing you know, then that would sort of reflect in um, why you might sort of 
back one liter over another. I guess what's kind of interesting because I did do some work at uh, replicating your study, Paul, the class of 2013, and um, we didn't find the same pattern. So this, you know, the class of 96 really was quite unique. Um, and, you know, what we sort of saw was a lot more people with the backgrounds that we would expect and and a reflection of the sort of professionalization of um, politics more generally, um, far more likely to have a background in, um, you know, staffing or, you know, politics allied in um, or instrumental type careers and, and far fewer people with party experience as well. So far fewer branch presidents for example. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's interesting. So, so, so they're less involved in the kind of the local civic affairs. The dimension but. is, is, is declining and the professional dimension is increasing, which would, which we would expect as parties are less central to anyone's lives. Yeah. So that, that's um, interesting. So it will be fascinating to see the way this plays out. Let's take a quick break and be back in just a moment. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Now, there was also, of course... uh perhaps less uh, globally significant, but uh, certainly relevant here in the ACT, an election in this jurisdiction over the weekend. And Labor was again, as I said in the introduction, was again elected. That's, um, I think, six elections in a row. Paul, that's a pretty extraordinary run. What What's going on here? Is it just that uh, this is a company town and uh, you know, most people work for the public sector and and uh, and it's a safe Labor territory? I think it's a really interesting um, case of an electorate that's actually listening. Um, there was a lot of commentary on the night about, well, Andrew Barr got to talk to people every night about COVID, as if that some t- somehow that the opposition ought to have equal time during, during the crisis. But if you look at the uh, performance of... Um, uh, the leader of the Liberal Party, um, Alistair Coe. Alistair yeah. Coe. You know, I nearly had to write that down this morning. Which I, I always think, go to call him Sebastian yeah, Coe. Well, of course, he was him, a member of Parliament as well. Yeah, like, uh, a minister in the Tory government. Uh, so. After being a brilliant middle distance runner and one of my athletic heroes. But anyway, and yeah, I did but, have the, uh, the the pleasure of meeting him at the National Press Club a few years ago when he came and spoke and a terrific chap too. Yes. But anyway, I've interrupted you with my yeah. No, I just, I just, as I say, I had to write the name down because I, I, I couldn't remember it, and I think that's probably a, an indication of uh, some of his problems. And it was also <laughs> um, an indication. Uh, I mean, I think he was a perfect example of um, having to answer questions rather than repeat slogans. I think his answer to every question was the same, and mm. I think that would be the sort of thing that really. Um, 
damage his standing in, in the ACT election. I went to the actual um, election debate, which was conducted at the National Press Club uh, about three weeks out from the poll, um, mediated by Adam Shirley from the ABC, where the two lead. It was, it was like, I think it might have been the same day as that uh, appalling it presidential it debate. Was. Yeah, right? it so was. it was uh, 7 p.m. that night. And, of course, we saw the presidential debate between 11 a.m. and 12.30, I think, in, in earlier in the day. And then later that day I went to the National Press Club and there was this most orderly debate uh, between the two ACT alternatives. But you're right. The thing that struck me and a couple of others uh, uh, after, as we were discussing it afterwards was the number of times that uh, Alistair Coe responded to questions put to him by the moderator with what appeared to be a pre-prepared answer. It's like as soon as the moderator stopped talking, he started talking with his with, with what he was going to say, which was in the slot of a response, but it didn't sound like a response. Oh, it it was sounded a slogan. like a they slogan. They were slogans. Yeah, yeah definitely. And I, I, I think that would damage him in a, in a, a discerning electorate. Yeah. Um, and obviously... Uh, I mean, I wouldn't think that the Labor government should be uh, complacent with the because of the increase in the Greens, because I think it highlights their Achilles heel, which could actually uh, really damage them going forward. And that's the issue of planning, of course. Yeah, I, I think there's real that issue's got real bite in Canberra, and I think that explains why. Um, there's been such a strong support for for the Greens, not only in relation to the issues, the global issues. Because they've gone from three members to at least five and probably six, which yeah. is uh, which is quite significant. Yeah, I mean, what it suggests is that you know this is a very long term um, government with the sort of I guess obvious alternative in the Liberal Party not necessarily matching the preferences of a city like Canberra. And for, for those of you that, that don't live here, which would be most of you, um, you might recall that um, a few years ago now, Senator Gary Humphreys was uh, effectively um, ambushed and, and replaced um, in uh, a party pre-selection several years ago. And what that actually represented was a, t- a takeover by the right of the ACT um, Liberals. And so the ACT Liberals are one of the most conservative branches of the Liberal Party. In one of the most pro- – well, in probably the, the most, most progressive, progressive jurisdiction. Yeah, it's it, bizarre. Exactly. I mean, there was a – It's a recipe it, for loss really, isn't it? Well, yes. I mean, and the Liberal Party's vote actually went backwards, um, which is um, amazing given it's a 19-year-old government and, um, you know – the principle of our system of government in this country is one based on alternation between government and official opposition. And so I think the, the fact that we have seen a rise in the Greens vote like reflects not only the politics of, of Canberra um, and being a fairly left-wing jurisdiction in general, but that voters are clearly seeking out alternatives. It's just that they don't necessarily think that um, that the Liberal Party offers offers a, a, a alternative that they they consider um, reasonable. Paul's point's a really interesting one, though about um, about the you know the, the growth of the Greens. There, I'd be interested in your view on this, Maria. Is, do you think there is? Um, I mean, Labor will need to be careful that there is this growth of um, on, on its left flank, as it were, growth of electoral support on its left flank. Um, I didn't want it to sound like a tumor when it was at that point. Um, is it? Do you think that's Labor voters who are saying to the ALP, "We we are of the progressive of progressive disposition. We're not 
concerned. We're not sure that you are sufficiently of progressive disposition. Is it? Is it kind of broadly like that? We want to. We want to re-elect a Labor government, but we want to send it a message, not by voting for the for the Libs, which might be the the normal way voters send a message. You know, flip the government over, but by actually voting for the party on its left flank, which they know will guarantee supply, and which has been in coalition with Labor in the up until this election. Do you think there's much in that? Yeah. I do. I mean, I'd, I'd remind everyone that the ACT um, has a hair clerk voting system, which is a lot like um, MMP, basically. Yeah. So, so you know, there are um, multiple districts with multiple candidates, which is yeah. five districts, twenty-five with, candidates all up. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, twenty-five members all up. That's right. So people are incentivized to to pick amongst. Um, Labor Party candidates or Greens Party candidates, and they actually get more than one vote, right? Um, and so as a result of this, yeah, you would expect this kind of strategic voting to be, uh, reflected in, in how people vote. And I think, I think it's actually a really interesting discourse in this country where we sort of expect Labor to be able to very easily accommodate the full range of thinking on the left, particularly at a time when, um, you know, politics isn't as materially focused, i.e. on actual staff, hospitals, schools, wages, that it was in 1940, for example. Um, and that, you know, the, the, the left encompasses a, a wide variety of potential thinking. And that's reflected actually in internal debates within Labor at the federal level right now. I mean, you've got Joel Fitzgibbon basically defending classic mining jobs um, on coal fields and, you know, other people sort of really emphasising identity politics or, you know, post-material um, politics. And so I think this is a natural progression of um, what the federal voting system doesn't really allow very well. And, of course, you know, Labor itself um, – they don't like the Greens and the Greens don't like Labor because they're obviously competing for a bunch of floating voters, which in this case in the ACT have 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 gone to vote for the Greens uh, potentially because they have become convinced that the Greens are, are better or they're doing it for strategic um, reasons because they don't think the Liberals will win or for, what, for whatever it is. But I guess the bottom line for me is I don't think we should be worried. I think anything that pushes debate to be more nuanced and to be a bit more public is a good thing. The Greens also don't need to get too excited about this. I mean, if you look at the figures, it's only really in Currajong where uh, Shane Rattenbury is the head of the ticket. So that's an in, that's one of the inner 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 Canberra electorates, right? Yeah, and Just he, for those people who aren't here. sort of like Brunswick or Newtown. Yeah, yeah, um, and where, I, where I live basically. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he he um, he's the only one who got a quota in his own right. All the others were in the area of six. Uh, 0.6 of a quota. Yeah. And so it's really the flow of Labor preferences that's getting them elected. But um, it will be interesting to see what the long-term implications of this are because if Canberrans, let's assume, I mean, this is a you know just one possibility I acknowledge, but let's assume that Canberrans don't want to vote for a Liberal Party they see as captive of the, of the right of the Liberal Party, but eventually they choose to turn over this government. Could they turn it over... To the left. I mean, could there be this ongoing drift of uh, Labor supporters to the Greens? They might, for example, take the view that 
a labor party that is funded by those labor clubs which have you know pokies in them and so forth there's a bit of criticism about that and frankly i think it's very legitimate criticism i i think that depends on whether or not the greens present themselves as a party of government being a party of government requires you to um make compromises and to um to to sort of i guess push a center line particularly in a in a country like um australia that it's not quite clear that the Greens are potentially willing to do. I mean, you know, I mean, people don't necessarily think of the National Party in, as a party of government in quite the same way as they do um, the Liberal Party. That, of course, is not beyond the Greens. There's plenty of Greens parties, the German Green Party, for and example. And it's not beyond the thinking of some Greens yeah. even now. We've seen people, I mean, I've, I've seen Bob Brown make that point when he was Greens leader, that he certainly coveted the idea of the Greens becoming a party of government. I don't think, I think you're absolutely right that it would be a, quite a leap for them. But bearing in mind that we're not talking necessarily, it wouldn't be a requirement that they would have to simply, you know, become the, uh, you know, a majority in their own right. They just may need more seats than Labor. And if they, if if at the next election, the, uh, uh, let's say Andrew Barr's decided to call it quits and uh, there's not a high level of conviction to whoever takes over, um, voters don't want to go to the Conservatives and you find a situation where, you know, it's kind of, Eight six or something in favour of uh, in favour of the Greens, they become the majority party. What does Labor do? It's not going to. I mean, interesting. Does it become the junior member? Of, uh, look, I know. I'm well, rationally, along. it would become the junior member, but whether or not it would, I, I don't think this is um, going to happen at the the next election. I, I mean, I you know, I think it is an interesting and live question as to whether or not the Greens and Labor will ever. Um, move into a sort of more formalised coalition arrangement or at least sort of think about being in a coalition in the way that the Nats and the Libs have been for more than a century. But there are like big internal political battles that need to be sort of fought. Like it's not just a question of how parties, elites present themselves because I think Shane Rattenbury has actually sort of had to kind of do that. You know, he's been a minister, he's been accountable, he's had to explain why he has delivered decisions that his constituents don't like. Um, and that's a whole sort of skill set that that the whole party would actually need to develop in order to be able to not only manage the internal politics of their own party but to convince, um, you know, the rest of um, the city um, that they could actually be trusted with the levers of government and it wouldn't become some kind of, you know, pot-smoking um uh, environmental haven, <laughs> which is how which is how the Greens are often depicted in popular discourse, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, and it would be interesting uh, to see... Just that, a haze over our Parliament House. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, it'd be interesting to see how that would be responded to by by the Feds as well, because of course we know that uh, this is a jurisdiction that exists only by virtue of an act of the Federal Parliament. Uh, it's not, I mean, in terms of its self government, uh, and um, we've seen the territories overrided before when legislation, particularly end of life uh, legislation, for example, law or marijuana, these things come up, um, and. Um, uh, you know, the Conservatives, if they're in charge nationally, may decide to override that. Uh, that would be obviously a retrograde step. doesn't say much for democracy in this jurisdiction if, in fact, we end up not having self-government. But I guess there's a whole lot. It's a house of cards, really, of assumption on assumption. Let's, um, in the time we've got left, quickly turn to uh, something I mentioned in the introduction, 
the the Berejiklian question, but also some of those other uh, um, scandals that have occurred recently. I mentioned Leppington Triangle and the land at the uh, Western Sydney Airport, where vastly more was paid for land uh, by the by the federal government for for, for a runway in thirty years' time than uh, than is. Um, and was the market value of it? And uh, of course, we've seen sports rorts and uh, the uh, Angus Taylor affair when he attacked the uh, the Sydney City Council using a, a, what turned out to be a forged document. Is there, um, uh, Paul? Do you think just a, a and obviously the Berejiklian case is a, is a state very much a state case? But is there just an overwhelming momentum now behind this need for an, a, a federal version of of ICAC? Well, it's um, but certainly the one that the government's got on the agenda doesn't have anywhere near the features that ICAC has, and no. and so we're a long way off at federal level having an independent uh, form of policing of political conduct. And the question, I guess, is: Has that sort of conduct always been going on? And is the Senate performing its function in uh, uh, finding that? form of conduct or do we need a, um, an external body and does the fact that we have an external body actually make it seem like there's more uh, corruption going on when perhaps there's always been a level of that sort of um, horse trading going on? Well, when we think about a couple of those things that have come up uh, that I just listed, uh, let's take sports rorts, let's take Leppington Triangle, the, the land deal. These things have been exposed by the Australian National Audit Office, an office which, by the way, lost money in the last election. Uh, it was one of the very few agencies in a, in a, in a budget. Sorry, did I say election? I meant budget. Uh, lost uh, money in the last budget, right? It was one of very few agencies when money was washing around in, in, you know, in vast amounts, as we know from, from this budget. Yet somehow there was something like a $14 million haircut for the Australian National Audit Office. Now, this is the, the, the agency which did expose the sports rorts and it was the agency that exposed this quite recently, this Leppington Triangle thing. Um, so it's pretty clear government doesn't like this kind of scrutiny, um, but um, but that it is warranted. I mean, I think what's really interesting about all of these um, cases is uh, it, it kind of goes to the, the point that the, the chain of accountability in our system, which is a Westminster system, uh, is not functioning well. And part of that is for a very understandable reason, which is that government has become significantly more complex. And so there is a genuine question around what it is legitimate for a minister to really know what is happening in a department they run when they might have uh, tens of thousands of people working uh, for them, right? But there are actually also some other important considerations that politicians have um, either created or resisted changing, uh, and that relates to um, how they manage their personal offices, particularly their political staff, um, and use them as um, sort of shields um, to protect them from um, scrutiny. And so w what is important to kind of know about political staff is that they are appointed by uh, ministers. They are accountable only really to ministers. They are not summonable before the committee system in the Senate, but for example. 
just cool. don't appear on an org chart, do they? I mean, they, they sort of don't exist in a sense. They're in a twilight. Yes. And they, they're, they're actually also not... In every way except for their, their drain on the public purse. Yeah, well, yes, and there's a lot of them. Um, and so, like, for example, there are around 450 at the federal level. There are around 300 at the state level in New South Wales and about the same number in Victoria, uh, the last figures I looked at. So, um, and... I guess, and that's the that's the point. Like you know, the, the the bodies that investigate them are effectively the Department of Finance. So the Department of Finance is obviously you know not an independent institution of of government, and that's what's different about the Audit Office. The Audit Office is accountable to Parliament. It is actually a organ set up by Parliament, which is why um, its um, investigative powers and its remit and its view on the world is actually kind of quite different. And I think the other set of questions it raises is one is one around culture. Like one of the reasons why politicians are resisting a federal ICAC is because they're afraid of the inquisitorial star chamber destructive um, capacity of ICAC to have on politicians' and, and, and careers. And the theatre of it all, the theatre the of, of accusation yeah. really. Yeah. And the element to which it has a judicial st- status. Uh, I mean, there's been a couple of backbenchers raising the issue of the separation of powers even in 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 this context, which, I mean, I, I think we need to get the lawyers in on that one. But the, there is a notion that if you have a judicial body or a body with, with legal authority that's outside of parliament investigating parliamentarians, that you are somehow infringing the separate, separation of powers. So, uh, like I say, I think that's a Probably an article, uh, probably an argument that will sink below the horizon quite quickly, but yeah. you can certainly see where it's going. Yeah. It seems to boil down to basically one rule for politicians and one rule for the rest of us. I mean, so, uh, you know, in the, in the Beryl Jicklian, um, case, it is sort of remarkable that, you know, like, I think there's, there's something to be said for, where do private lives and public lives begin for politicians? You know, politicians have a, a, a hard job and, and, you know, they make mistakes and that, that all that is true. But I do think it's kind of remarkable that, I mean, if I formed a relationship with someone in my department at this university, I'd be required to declare it. Um, to the university so I wouldn't be put onto the same committees as them you know, when important decisions were being made. And I just think it's kind of interesting that um, Gladys Berejiklian didn't think that her relationship while she was a minister with a backbencher was of relevance. And, I th- and, and-, and, and, and that, if I can just add to that, that gets turbocharged by 2018 when he's ejected from Parliament, when he's required to resign, he's declared persona non grata, a person of dubious character. And then the secrecy of that relationship, I think, becomes a matter of great public interest and it is withheld from the public. It is a piece of information that is extremely germane to uh, the appearance, the risk of uh, undue influence uh, and to the possibility, you know, to the actuality of that if it were to occur. And, of course, while things remain secret, none of that is exposed. I think it's extraordinary that a that the, the, the state's top public official has withheld that information and the only justification she can come up with is I'm a private person. You're not a private person, I'm afraid. You're the top public official in the state. It'll also be interesting to see whether she holds her popularity with with the electorate. I mean, people don't don't recall uh, often that throughout Watergate uh, until the very, very dying days, uh, Nixon held his popularity with the electorate. Watergate was seen as a distraction. 
Um, and so, well, it's highly know, complicated, but it's also, um, and I think this goes to your point. It's also dealing with things which are essentially kind of matters of elite procedure and protocol and so forth. You know, like they're not kind of retail bread and butter issues. And I think that the, the thing that protects Berejiklian in here, in a sense, is that at a human angle, going to Maria's point, at a human angle, um, the idea of her having an intimate relationship and wanting to protect that uh, is very relatable for most ordinary people and they may be less concerned about the niceties of um, of probity and public declaration and transparency and those sorts of things. Yeah, I guess the only, well, the area where she's particularly vulnerable is the the sort of, well, I don't need to know that type comments, you know, mm. la, 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 la. I'm, we're not, <laughs> I, I get, I, I think people were, can only find one way to take that. Now, I know the spin is that, oh, well, she was bored and she didn't want to hear about it, but that doesn't seem to me to be getting anywhere as a sort of explanation of why you'd say someone, no, look, oh, that's something I don't want to know about. Hmm. Um, Especially seeing as, well, the guy's a member of parliament, he's the member of parliament for Wagga Wagga, and he's involved in a whole bunch of, in, in facilitating, bringing about land deals and other transactions in areas a long way away from his electorate. It's, and, you know, I mean, Jody Mackay, the uh, Labor leader, said in Parliament that the Premier had become a sounding board for corruption. Now, whether uh, whether that was uh, an exaggeration or not is uh, another matter, but uh, the tapes themselves, which is an extraordinary moment, we should note this, an extraordinary moment, hearing a Premier on a, on a, on a you know, a wiretap, a, a phone recording of her having a conversation played at this ICAC was dramatic stuff. And as you say, Paul, it, it does show her saying, well, I don't need to know about that, as if, as if one, perhaps there's a previous arrangement, um, look, whatever you're doing, please don't give me the details. Even if it is, that is, that is as you say, that's like deliberately turning a blind eye to potentially wrongful acts. Yeah, it'd be, uh, it'll be interesting to see whether that is what brings her down or whether people are prepared to accept that that's private business and that what they're most interested in is how she's running the state and how she's dealing with COVID and um, and the glaring contrast between the way that New South Wales has been able to deal with COVID and Victoria has. If those issues are what really matter to um, voters in New South Wales, or then uh, maybe this will be seen as a sort of a side a- act or a distraction. I mean, I think ultimately um, this case sort of is a sort of, I guess, a canary in the coal mine around what are the, the attitudes that public officials kind of have about their roles and responsibilities. And um, and I think this case in particular, as Gladys herself is at the, on the face of the current evidence, not implicated in any of this um, corruption. And so a bit of a balance of probabilities argument will kind of apply to her. But there is this other scandal that's on the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald today where... Indeed. I mean, um, let, let me, let me yes, just while you on. mention that, just read the lead and with due uh, accreditation for the source, as you say, Sydney Morning Herald, Alexandra Smith, her state political reporter. The, sto- <clears throat> the splash story in the Herald reads... The Berejiklian government handed out more than $250 million in council grants, almost all in coalition-held seats in the months before last year's election without any signed paperwork. 
the government has confirmed no signed approvals existed for 249 grants rubber-stamped between June 27, 2018 and March 2019 from the, I love the name of this, the Stronger Communities Fund established after council mergers. Gladys Berejiklian uh, directly approved more than $100 million in grants but the only records of the approvals are in the form of emails from policy advisors. <laughs> yeah, this, which this is, is pretty pretty shocking. And and it, I, you know, to to harp back onto my point, like you know, what what is the chain of accountability for this set of decision making? And I find it hard to believe that um, if the if the government knocked on um, one of our doors to ask how we had spent our grant money, that um, this kind of paper trail would be sufficient um, for for the government's own rules around probity and the effectiveness of public spending. And, and not to mention robo-debt where you had to go back seven years or whatever it was and explain how, you know, every every cent that you'd earned and uh, and have documents to prove it and so e- forth. Exactly. And so whilst I, I have some sympathy for politicians who are concerned about, you know, the, the, the powers of a body like ICAC, um, it, it does, it does, it's hard to view this as anything other than not wishing to subject themselves to the same level of scrutiny that they effectively impose upon every other citizen. And, uh, you know, integrity issues are kind of like a, you know, quote unquote, like a beltway issue, but they actually go to the core of public trust. And so whilst in, you know, Gladys's case with, um, basically having a bad boyfriend, I think, which is something that most people can kind of relate to. It doesn't, it is ultimately a distraction from the core questions, which is, you know, what do we expect of our politicians? What do our politicians expect that they are supposed to be doing in their, in their jobs? And who is actually responsible and how is that discoverable? Yeah, I think that this goodwill question, and you made this point, Paul, this goodwill question around uh, Gladys Berejiklian is, 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 is a really interesting one because she did go into this astonishing revelation, as I say, that came out a week ago from nowhere. Um, she did go into that with very high public standing, regarded as one of the most proper po- politicians anyone could name, uh, a stickler for, for for detail and for doing things right, a kind of a beacon of of conservative restraint in every way, um, and seemed very straight-laced. And then we find this out. Um, it probably does... It, it, it's the ideal conditions in a way for her to, you know, continue to insist I did nothing wrong. I mean, it surprises me though that people aren't making more of the decision, which is an ongoing decision, an ongoing deception over, uh, over five years and particularly since 2018 when Maguire is, you know, caught up in the first ICAC, uh, inquiry. Why? Why people aren't making more of the ongoing decision to keep this quiet, bearing in mind that it would have occasioned big political damage at the time of it coming out and that there was indeed a political risk to the government of it coming out in an unmanaged way as well. Yeah. Know, if someone uh, discovered it. There's a lot to explain that, that, that it's going to have to be a good one for <laughs> it to, to uh, manage to tie up all the loose ends on, on, on why it's taken this long to fess up, but the 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 reality is that it'll be interesting to see how the rhythm of the discussion about it uh, relates to the uh, her standing in the opinion polls because of the the generally and I think um, considerable support for the way that she's dealt with uh, 
the major crisis confronting New South Wales. Similarly with the... You mean in terms of the bushfires and COVID? Yeah. 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 And, uh, I mean, again, the we're going to go down, the, obviously, as a result of the, uh, the article in the Herald this morning, we're going to go down a, a tunnel there about... Um, due process, but and we need to know, was there an application process? Did it go through the hands of public servants at some point in time? Or were these applications just popped in the mail to the minister's office? Mm. I mean, or the premier's office? I think, we, you know, there's a lot to see there yet, but it it's not going to be the first or last time these, these grants are handed out for um, political advantage. Yeah. Um, you, and it's not the first or last time it's going to cross... Uh, party boundaries in terms of handing out uh, funds for uh, that happen to be in marginal seats. Yeah, absolutely. So much to uh, to think about, and uh, and and so many details that yet to come out on that story. I think. Look, it's been an absolutely terrific discussion. Thanks, Paul Pickering and Maria Taplaga, for again being on Democracy Sausage. And uh, we'll be back next week. And I'll be back, well, one of us, someone will be back anyway later in the week with the Democracy Sausage Extra. And uh, we we'll look forward to talking to you then. Bye for now. Bye. Bye. 